We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning to one and all. Welcome to Fellowship Bible. It's good to see you again this weekend. Yeah, Michael, that's good. Wonderful. Well, I'm just going to let everybody uh, find a seat. Our scripture reading is in Proverbs. If you would turn there to the 25th chapter of the Proverbs. More wise sayings. However, these also, it says, are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. The text of Scripture says then in verse number 2, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Take away the dross from silver, and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Speaking probably of uh, advisors, counselors, people around him, if you take the wicked away, like Rehoboam. Never let him speak to those young fools then he would not have gotten the dumb ideas that he did and split the kingdom. Verse 6, Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, Come up here, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. Do not go hastily to court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? Debate your case with your neighbor and do not disclose the secret to another, lest he who hears it expose your shame and your reputation be ruined. A lot there in the Proverbs about discretion, isn't there? Keeping your mouth shut, there's a lot of value to that. Verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. Like the cold of snow and... Time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. Whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. Think of anybody in the Bible who did that? Falsely boasts of giving? Acts 5, Ananias. They gave something, but the boast that they were presenting was that they gave everything. They didn't give everything. They lied. Verse 15, By long forbearance a ruler is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. A man who, but that doesn't say, by the way, to never have your neighbor in your home, okay? So don't just close the door on hospitality. 
Verse 18, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a club, a sword, and a sharp arrow. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. Verse 20, like one who takes away a garment in cold weather and like vinegar on soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Kind of sounds familiar to what? Paul, doesn't it? Romans. The north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. It's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. As cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a far country. A righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. Can a spring send forth, I'm not reading now from this, I'm quoting from James roughly, can a spring send forth both sweet water and bitter at the same time? And so when you testify to the wicked using a a faltering speech, you know, you're presenting the Lord's word to them as a murky kind of thing, is polluted. Verse 27, it's not good to eat much honey, so to seek one's own glory is not good. And finally, verse 28, whoever has no rule over his spirit is like a city broken down without walls. God bless that wisdom to us, I pray. You know, we have a lot of things we want to do in life and things, hopes and dreams and all of that and Maybe we've been caught up in a little materialism and whatnot, but, you know, the Lord says, you seek first the kingdom of God. All that stuff will be added to you. Years and years ago, um, my wife, who was not yet my wife at that time, we went to visit with Pastor Don and Marilee Peterson in their home, and uh, we did that in order to just receive a little bit of premarital counseling from them Delightful folks. Mrs. Peterson is with the Lord now. I haven't spoken with Pastor Peterson in many years, but God has given him a great longevity for this age. And he testified then and also a number of other times uh, when we visited their place on the lake, little tiny home, uh, but great view. And uh, he said the Lord provided everything that we needed. He testified that we made it our aim. If you know his backstory, it's amazing. Out of the war and uh, TB, he had to stay in the hospital for a year, and he was called to ministry during that time by God. And um, he gave himself to the Lord. And he said, we have experienced that truth ourselves. God has provided everything. We set him first, and he watched out for us. Even into, at that time, probably their yeah, early 80s, late 70s, or something like that. In fact, that brother, uh, he retired from ministry at 65, and then he took up another ministry uh, in which he said it was his burden to help his uh, brothers um, in the ministry by pulpit supply and interim pastoring and helping churches all around this area. And you know he spoke here many times. And for 25 years... After he was 65, he had that as a career, and it was very, very helpful. 
And I can testify myself. I, I looked at their lives and I said, you know, I want to have that testimony later on. And I can say that I have that now and I'm looking forward to it in the future and I hope you will as well. That same testimony that if you set God first, he'll take care of you. And uh, that's what my desire is for my family and I have that as a desire for you all as well because you will never regret putting God first and uh, see how he provides richly for you to enjoy in his uh, good creation as well. Well, let's turn back to Genesis, please, chapter 5 now, Genesis chapter 5, as we continue doing a somewhat high-level overview of the book, but not as high-level as what I did, um, oh, about uh, 17 years ago now. You'll see on these notes, I uh, revised them from November uh, of 2005. I had taught through Genesis a couple of times in uh, this context, not on Sunday mornings, but I think on Wednesday nights perhaps, and then also in uh, in other Bible studies in nursing homes and things. But we come now to Genesis chapter 5. We've seen the initial creation in chapter 1 through 2-3. We've seen the history of the earth through the fall, the curse, and we've seen the entrance of murder and even the beginnings of human religion in um, chapter 4. At the uh, where we ended last time. And now the author, God, through Moses, takes us to the history of the family of Adam. And there's some genealogical information in it, uh, very significant. There is some of that in the earlier part of Genesis where we've already been. We didn't make a big deal about that at the time, but we saw um, folks who were born and so on, Adam and, and Eve having Cain and Abel and, and then uh, Seth and so on. Uh, some of the others were mentioned as well. But this chapter contains the first detailed genealogy in the Bible. And uh, genealogies uh, get a pretty bad rap, unfortunately. Um, some people are very interested in genealogical study. I know a fellow on uh, through a, a, another venue in the uh, radio business uh, hobby that... Uh, is very interested in genealogical information. He studies that stuff a lot. And you know some people are are very interested in that. We can glean a great deal from this chapter, chapter 5, and we hope to do some of that today without going through every little, little detail. I'm going to give you a kind of a high-level overview and some theological um, matters that come up in the chapter. There are ten main characters listed in chapter 5 from Adam all the way to Noah. Each person has uh, two or three verses devoted to them, and uh, they are in this general format. It says that the man lived so many years and had a son, and after he had a son, he lived so many more years and maybe had other sons and daughters, and then the length of his life is given as the total number of years. And uh, then it says, in most of the cases, he died. There are a couple of exceptions to this pattern. Let's read the chapter uh, together here. I'll I'll read it as you follow along. I hope you will follow along. Take your copy of God's Word and look at it with your uh, best attention. It says in Genesis 5 and verse number 1, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image 
and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Cainan, and after he begot Cainan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 12, Cainan lived 70 years and begot Mahalel. After he begot Mahalel, Cainan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Cainan were 900 years, 910 years, rather, and he died. Mahalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalel were 895 years and he died. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. And after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Notice that's the shortest in the list in this chapter. And it says, verse 24, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Doesn't say that he died, does it? Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 767 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old and begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All right, that was a little bit of a Hebrew mouthful there. Be thankful you didn't have to read all those names. They're not that bad, actually, but... um, couple of exceptions to the pattern of living, having children, living longer, and then dying uh, in the chapter. The most notable of these is the translation of Enoch. Instead of dying, it says that he was translated. He walked with God and he was not, by which we understand that he was translated directly into God's presence. Enoch is also said to have walked with God, not to just live, but walk with God for 300 years. In 522, and 24, it, uh, it says that he uh, walked with God, and then 24, and he walked with God two times. This is not mentioned of any other men in the list. Another exception to the pattern is Lamech. There, the exception really has to do with a little more detail given about his son. He names Noah and gives some explanation for the name. And then the final exception is Noah himself who is listed as having three sons. He's older than all the other men at the birth of their notable sons. Although, of course, we don't know exactly if he was, how old does it say he was 500 years old? Of course, he couldn't have been 500 for the birth of all three unless they were triplets or uh, twins in a, in a Irish twins set or whatever, you know. I mean, so uh, anyway, around that age, okay? The Bible, as our brother told us yesterday, is 
accurate, if not precisely scientific in its exactness, you know, like we might like to see the, the dates, the months, the, the whatever for all of this information. It's not necessary for the Bible to convey the information that it wishes to convey. So uh, he's listed as uh, older, has the three sons, and then he has a large section of Scripture devoted to him in chapters uh, 6 through 9, focused on his life and times, of course, the flood. And I think that is important in the sense that Noah is being called out specially here. Something is going to happen in his life. His dad is somewhat prophetic in the statement about his name. And so then we don't see about his final age or death until the end of chapter 9. So it's kind of like chapter 5's genealogy is interrupted, and then it's continued at the end of chapter 9 where we see about his death and age. I want to talk about the format of this whole chapter. Despite the reputation, as I was alluding to earlier, about genealogies being very boring, I'm sure that if you found your name in an old, um, you know, your family name in an old genealogy, you would be fascinated. If you found somebody that you knew in an old record of, of uh, genealogy, it would be just very interesting, and you'd try to figure out more about it. In the Bible, there are two basic kinds of genealogical information. One is a plain, ordered list of births. You know, A had child B, who had child C, who had child D, and so on. There's a variant of this type of genealogy, which is a summary genealogy, I'll call it, in which the information is presented in such a way that it's clear that it's kind of constructed for a purpose, or as some might say in a building context, it's purpose-built. You see that in Matthew 1, where you have the 14 generations, the 14, and the 14. It seems a little unlikely that there was actually exactly 14, 14, 14, and it's put there for uh, memory's sake, and it focuses on the most important people. And we know that some names are omitted from the genealogies of uh, Jesus, and we can fill in some of those names from the other biblical genealogies, but it wasn't the point of the author to list all the names. Actually, the point was to show that Jesus was the son of uh, David, and back through Noah and Adam and all the way in Luke to the Son of God. That was the purpose. And so you have to let the purpose of the text be the purpose of it and not kind of shoehorn your own purpose upon the text to make it say what you want it to say or to be able to criticize it to, because it doesn't say what you want it to say. The second basic type of genealogy is what is called a chronological genealogy or a chrono genealogy for short. It contains numbers of years that may be, may be incomplete in some instances, but not necessarily, are presented in such a way that the years can be added to find a near exact length of time from the first person to the last person. And it may be that like this genealogy, you know, there's so many years between uh, father and son that it may be as father and grandson or great-grandson is listed there. That was a common feature in genealogical charts or, or lists um, where, you know, kind of the significant names would be mentioned, as I mentioned earlier. So you can add these years, and uh, the genealogy of Genesis 5 is of this latter type, the chrono genealogy. 
Um, and so on the website, I didn't print it out for you here, but on the website you'll find a PDF file that has a little chart of the ge uh, genealogy in this chapter and also in chapter 11. And in there I put all the numbers, when these guys were born, when they had their significant child, and when they died. And so chapter 5 takes us up to the flood. Chapter 11 follows on from the flood all the way down to Abraham. And so these genealogies, which are historical documents of utmost reliability, are, are one of the main reasons we believe the earth is as young as it is. We calculate that the earth is on the order of six to 8,000 years old. It's not millions of years. And how do we know that? because humans kept genealogical records that take us all the way back to the first man and all the way forward to Abraham. And then secular chronology can get us all the way back to Abraham so we can peg a date on him around, I think it's 2166. That spreadsheet has it in there, just giving it to you from memory. But we have a connection all the way back to the beginning. Very interesting. And now I'm going to talk about the longevity of these men. But let me just highlight that, I, that notion about historical documents. Scientists can say all of they want about the age of the earth, but here you have testimony passed down from generation to generation to Moses and written down for us. This is tremendous information. This is information that would be lost to history, would be lost to us, if it had not been recorded and God saw fit to record it to teach us something. I think among other things to say, this earth is not as old as what people want to say that it is who are naturalistic in their assumptions. Now he built that into the scriptures long before naturalistic assumptions became all the rage in the 1800s with Charles Darwin and then beyond because that became a very convenient explanation for people to get rid of God out of their thinking. Um, that's really all that it was. Before that, the universal belief among Christian people and those in the West was that, of course, God created us. I mean, look at, I'm looking at you. It's impossible to imagine that you came out of nothing. It's utterly, it's utterly ridiculous to think that a, a machine, I'll call you, as complex as you with not only machine parts but a spirit, would be able to come out of nothing. And then ask yourself, where did this universe come from? You know, Just peer through the lens of the Webb telescope for a little bit of time and see what you see out there and say, where is all of this stuff? How did this all come to be? It is utterly foolish to think that this came out of some random chance. We know that's impossible. Random chance doesn't produce things like this. So it's clear. But anyway, we have, these, we have this historical documentation. Regardless of what people think or say, you have records here, very good records. Now, as far as the longevity, the extreme longevity of these men is notable. Uh, the average lifespan in the first 10 generations, if you, uh, I didn't put this in the spreadsheet, but I just looked at it on the uh, uh, computer, 857 years was the average. If you don't count Enoch at 365, that average goes from 857 up to 912 years. Methuselah lived to the longest at 969 years, at least as far as recorded. We don't know. There could be others that lived just as long or, or longer. 
This longevity is likely a cause for ridicule among people who doubt the veracity of God's word. But to me, in my position, not only as a pastor, but also as a scientist and an educated person, I look at this and I say, it's no surprise to me at all. We are degraded greatly compared to what these people were in the opening generations of world history. The initial design of the human body was to live how long? Forever. Take of the tree of life, that body keeps functioning, God sustains it, it has built into it the mechanisms of self-restoration, self-repair, self-restoring in case of a, a nick or a cut or anything like that. What we see today, you know, when you get a cut and your body heals itself, is a mere shadow of what used to be before. God's design included safeguards against rogue cells being generated amongst the trillions of cellular reproductions that happen in the human body. I mean, not even over the course of a whole life, but over that, certainly trillions, and that rogue cellular activity would not even have happened in the first place before the fall. Do you think about it? No imperfect cellular replication that would allow a cancer or a mutation to enter into the human race. Now this mechanism, all of these mechanisms must have become damaged with the fall because the Lord said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. You begin to run out of steam, so to speak. Your body can't keep up. There were no genetic mutations to start with. Absolutely none. Mankind was perfect in his creation. God looked and saw all of that, and he said it was what? Very good. There was no shortcoming in it. Environmental conditions were perfect in the garden. Dietary conditions, perfect in the garden, probably continued to be like that for quite some time afterward compared to what we experience today. So if you have ideal genetics, an ideal environment, an ideal food, Ideal air, how long do you think that you could live? Well, actually, the Bible tells us that we will be resurrected into a new and glorified body, and we will live forever in that body. Amazing. The pre-flood condition of the earth is probably a major part of that longevity, so what we see today is nowhere near the perfection of environmental and and, uh, nutritional conditions that we could imagine, because if you look at the genealogy in Genesis 11 and compare the average longevity there, first of all, you see two things. You can just look down the spreadsheet and see it goes from 600 years all the way down into less than 200 in the space of 10 generations. And the average lifespan drops to 292 years from 912. And so since then, it has become normal for people to live under 200 years. Now it's become normal for people to live under 100 years, most normally. Whereas before the flood, only Methuselah died after his notable son died. I'm trying to give you an idea of the scope of what happened. Methuselah lived so long that his son, who also lived very long, died before he did. After the flood, it was a different story. Not just the one, I'm not counting um, Enoch, okay? He was translated, he didn't die. I wonder how his dad thought about that. But anyway, well, good for you, son. (laughs) I'm glad you did that. 
But after the flood in Genesis 11, three men experienced the loss of their offspring before them. Shem died. uh, I think I I wrote that wrong in my my notes there. He died... uh, Oh, yeah, I, I I wrote it correctly. He died after both his notable son and grandson. He observed the death of his son and his grandson, or at least he was alive during that time. The fellow named Eber outlived, listen to this, the following six, we just read this, okay? You don't have the, the, or uh, actually we didn't, in Genesis 11 we'll read it. He outlived the next six generations after him. Can you imagine that? He saw the death of his son, grandson, great-grandson, great two, great three, great four grandson. What sorrow he would have known. The Bible indicates, based on this timeline, that he, he uh, outlived, or how can I say it, outlived. He lived longer to, the, to a later date than Abram lived to. He could have known Isaac and Jacob. That puts within several generations of the flood a man who knew Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thus, how short world history is. But what a sorrow that this particular man experienced because with the blessing of longevity comes the curse of seeing all your friends and family die. And when you come to your funeral, there's hardly anybody left to be there. We've experienced sometimes that today. You have a, a very aged saint and the funeral is very small. Doesn't, it's not a measure of their popularity. It's a measure of their longevity, that God blessed them. God blessed them. That's why there were so few people at their funeral. Very odd kind of way when you think about that. The longer you live, the more world degradation you see. You know, Some of our saints that are in their 70s, 80s, 90s have seen so much in this world. You have to pray for them because they're so discouraged about that sometimes. We come to uh, chapter 5 in the opening part where it talks about the image of God and the image of Adam. It says that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then it says in verse 3, Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness. Well, what about that? So the words image and likeness are used of the creation of man in Genesis 1 and in chapter 5 here. And I, I remember reading some theologians who make a huge deal about, okay, there's the image and there's the likeness. And here's what this is and here's what this is. And it never really made sense to me. Why are you making such a huge deal about these two words? Um, I don't think it's a profitable use of our time because the words are probably paired like many words in Hebrew are simply as a way of emphasizing or repeating for clarity what is meant. It's called a Hebraism. Image and likeness are basically synonyms expressing that humans are like God in some respects. Now, we can talk about how like, in what way, spiritual likeness and all that. I'll mention some of that just now. So what is the image of God? The way that I'd say it is that it's the image of God is the personal, spiritual, and moral likeness of man to God. We are like God in terms that we're personal beings, we're spiritual beings, and we have moral nature like God has. It has to do with the constitution of what we are. When somebody asks you, who are you? 
What is your identity today? That's the common thing. Well, your identity is you are made in the image of God. That's number one. That's how you began. That's at base what you are. It doesn't relate to what you do or things outside of yourself. It is what you are internally, inherently, by nature. Of course, this does affect what you do and how you are, how you relate to others, but the image is underneath your behaviors, your conduct, your, your abilities to um, interact with others. Those come from that very nature, that image of God. It's more fundamental or basic than those behaviors. I'll, I'll explain a little bit why I say that in just a moment. We have a spirit like God is spirit. We have morality, which is the ability to discern between right and wrong, which is built into what aspect of our being? Our conscience. We have the ability to communicate and relate to others because God has built that into us in the image of God. We have the facility for language. Any language, whatever language we grow up with, is obviously the easiest one for us to learn. Now, there's other view, there are other views of the uh, image of God or likeness. The relational view says that the image of God is the experiencing of a relationship with God. But that's not accurate. We have a relationship with God, positive or negative, but we can have a good one with God because we are made in His image. We have the capacity to do that. But it's not the relationship itself that is the image. It is in us and what allows us to have that relationship. It's underneath. It's more fundamental. Then there's the functional likeness view that says that the image of God is what man does, that he has dominion over creation. Indeed, he does have that. But he can do that because he is made in the image of God. Only a personal, spiritual, and moral being could be a steward of God's creation. Only he could have the ability to communicate and reason and think and logic and all of that in order to be able to manage the creation of God. And with that ability, God charged our race with a command to be stewards over his creation. That duty is not the image. The image is the underlying stuff that we are made of that allows us to carry out that duty. And then finally, there's the view that's called the physical image view. Okay, that also doesn't agree with what I said the image is, the personal, spiritual, and moral likeness of God. What this is, is that we look like God and God looks like us. This is the Mormon view. But the image of God is not just physical. Now, it may include physical features if we suppose, as I do, that when God made man in his image, he knew what he wanted Jesus to look like when he came incarnate. And he made mankind like that. It's not that he made mankind in some random way and then Jesus came in that likeness. You've got to remember God knows everything simultaneously from, from the past to the future. And he knew what he wanted Jesus to look like, what capacities he wanted him to have in his body, that he had to be able to die and all of those things, and also to, to have in him a duality of uh, person of, of nature, that he had a nature, a human nature and a divine nature. So God knew that that had to work. So he made man in his image. But the image is not primarily or only physical. This true for, if for no other reason than this, God is, does God have a body? 
God is spirit. Those who worship him must. That's what we're doing here today. John 4, 24, we must worship in spirit and in truth. But God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, and the Son before the incarnation were bodiless beings. Jesus now has a body, a glorified body, and always will have ever since the incarnation. He does not, so God does not have a material body. But the doctrine of the Mormon church is that God has ears, he has eyes, and he has a mouth, among other things. What have they done? They've taken the anthropomorphisms of the Bible. God hears our prayers. That doesn't mean he has ears. He sees our affliction. It doesn't mean he has eyes. He speaks. That doesn't mean that he has a mouth. The anthropomorphisms are mistaken in their theology for literal body parts, okay? Mistake. Now, do we still have the image of God today? And yes, in short, yes, we do. Genesis 5.3 says that Adam had a son in his own image. That speaks of the sin-damaged copy of the image of God from chapter 5, verse 1. So it, hypothetically, it would be nice if God took the image put it on the Xerox machine, made Adam, took Adam's perfect copy, put that on the Xerox machine, made the next one in line, and so on. It didn't happen that way. The image of God was marred in Adam, and Adam took his marred image and put that on the Xerox machine and made the next person out of that, and so on down the line. That's what happened. Adam had a son in his own image, the sin-damaged copy of the image of God. I don't think the image per se changed, but its capacities were limited. Sin uh, affected how it could be used and how it would be used by people. But, and thus, that's what I mean by damaged, okay? Anyway, we still possess the image of God as part of our constitution, yet it has been marred by the fall. It's wrinkled by sin. It's beclouded by moral misjudgment, darkness of the mind, and so on. You can probably think of some other descriptions that would fit here. Genesis 9.6 agrees. Why the death penalty? Because when you kill a person, you snuff out the image of God in that person. And so the only equal value punishment to that, that comes up to that level, is to carry out the death penalty for the person who did that crime. That also has a great uh, deterrent effect on the nation, uh, on the world, actually, the nations of the world. Um, James 3.9 says, Seeing we're made in the image of God, why do we use our mouth to bless God and to curse men? You know, we come to church and we bless God. And then we go gossip or we go th speak evil of a brother, as I prayed earlier today, or something like that. Very much out of place. 1 Corinthians 11.7 also mentions that man is the image and glory of God. So a number of texts support this view. Um, let me speak next about the reign of death. Genesis 5 tells us that each man, except Enoch, died. Now, there's ten, I said on the earlier part of the notes. One of them is Enoch, so that's nine. One of them is Noah, and his death is not mentioned until chapter 9, so that leaves 8. So there are 8 times that this is used. We know the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.12 explains that it 
sin entered the world by one man and death came on the heels of sin. And that's, by the way, another reason why, just like the chronogenealogy, why we believe in the young earth. Because death came after the sin of Adam. In the evolutionary perspective, there were millions of years of death and destruction and disease before humans, hominids, ever became on the earth. The Bible is very clear. It has to be, you have to hold the whole thing together. You can't just take Genesis 1 through 11 and snip it out of your Bible, set it aside and say, science has all the right answers there, but we'll take the gospel. No, the gospel is based on this foundation that we're looking at, and that's why we're looking at it, trying to uphold it and be very clear about it. Death came before sin in evolution's mindset, but the reality is that sin entered and then death through sin. There's no reason for death before sin. Why would, why would people die? They shouldn't. They didn't because sin had not entered yet. Thus, the word of God in Genesis 2.17 is confirmed. What is that word? I repeat that again. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Very next chapter, Satan says what? You shall not surely die. You pick who you want to believe, friends. As for me and my house, I want the Lord to be the one that we believe, not Satan. Terrible. Um, No one escapes the sentence of death, basically, except for a couple, Enoch, Elijah, and those alive at the rapture. These are singularities or edge cases, and we'll look at them just now with the translation of Enoch. The one exception listed there does provide us with the insight that it is possible, however rare, for some people to avoid death. The rule, Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed and the man wants to die, and then the judgment. It's not appointed unto men wants to die and then be reincarnated. Okay? It's wants to die and then the judgment. There is only one life to live, only one judgment to face. Believers at the judgment seat of Christ, unbelievers at the great white throne judgment. The Bible's clear about this. Hebrews 11, 5 and 6 tells us about Enoch. It says to us why he was translated. First, he had faith. Second, he pleased God, okay? This is the New Testament rendition of the words, he walked with God. It means he he lived with God, he walked and and pleased God. The commentary in Hebrews is, in 11.6, is that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But Enoch walked with God, he pleased God, he had faith, and those things go together. Faith and pleasing God come together always, but you cannot have, you cannot please God if you don't have faith. You have to have the first, then the second. If you do not trust God, mark it down, you are displeasing to him, and everything you do will be mired in a bog. Now notice the oddity again in the text. Almost every man in this list lived had children, lived some more, and then he died. But Enoch lived, had a son, and he walked with God. I wanted to point this out to you. 
because Enoch did not just live. He walked with God. And my question to you this morning is, are you just living? Are you just existing? Or are you walking with God? Let that question sink into your souls, my dear friends, and think about that. Am I just bumbling through life, just existing? Or am I walking with God? My prayer for you is that you will walk with God. And maybe you will be no more if the rapture comes during the time of your walk with God. One other man was taken up without dying. Who was that? Elijah, 2 Kings 2.11. It's strange, isn't it, that this man who was brought to the lowest place that you could come when Jezebel was chasing after him, And he goes to God and he says, look, Lord, I'm it. I'm the only one left. He didn't realize there's 7,000 others that had not bowed the knee to Baal. But he said, it's good enough. I'm finished. Let me die. Strange, isn't it, that the man who was not destined to die asked to do so? It was he who was destined never to die. Now, some We'll say, okay, we have Enoch, we have Elijah, then we have the two witnesses over there in Revelation, so maybe those are the two guys. It doesn't tell us that, but maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I'm not going to, you know, die on that hill. You can do that if you want to, and I'll do your funeral. Uh, (laughs) But maybe... Maybe, you know, because you say, well, it makes makes the, the record complete 100%, except it doesn't. Because there's coming a time when the Bible tells us that there will be a rapture. And Enoch and Elijah offer us a prototype for the rapture of the church. All those who were Christians when they died will be resurrected before the coming seven-year tribulation, and they will be with Christ forever in their resurrected bodies. At the same time as that resurrection occurs, those Christians who are still alive will be caught up like Enoch and Elijah in the rapture to join those who preceded them in death and will be with Christ also in their resurrected bodies. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That word for rapture that I've used, by the way, is the word that they will be, whoever's alive and remain when the Lord returns will be caught up together with them in the clouds. That's a word that means like snatched, kidnapped, from Latin, it's the word rapture, raptus. They will be snatched away from the earth in a twinkling of an eye, and I give you the references there. And if this happens very soon, we will experience this blessed hope. The end of the chapter ends with the naming of Noah, and that alerts us that something special is coming. He's predicted by his father, Lamech, to be involved in something regarding comforting humanity and its work, which was imposed upon us by the curse. And that's going to be the subject of chapters 6 through 9, which we'll get to in uh, time to come. Well, let us pray, and then we will have our closing song and and, uh, close our service. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for allowing us to be exposed again to the Word of God in Genesis chapter 5, and some in chapter 11 as well. I pray, God, that you would take these words and and, uh, 
bury them in our hearts, especially this question that I asked, and I really mean, and I pray for myself and all the rest of us, that we will not just live, but we will walk with God. Please help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.